and welcome to the Alba Diversity Podcast, an Alba network undertaking to profile and highlight diverse and immigrant neuroscientists. The Alba network aims to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences. We talk to neuroscientists across positions, career paths and backgrounds to better understand their personal journeys. We showcase the grit and determination it takes to overcome hurdles as part of underrepresented or minority groups. We talk about what keeps them going as individuals and as neuroscientists in today's world. I'm Dr. Mariam Zihai, and I'm a new group leader at Kavli Institute for System Neuroscience in Trondheim in Norway. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. So I did my bachelor in clinical psychology. And then from there, I did my master in clinical neuroscience. I'm studying patients with brain damage. And then I moved to Stockholm for part of my PhD. Um, I had to move on again from there to Australia and started my PhD or continued my PhD at the University of Queensland. And then I finished my PhD in 2016. And then after that, I got a postdoc has been doing a postdoc for a while and then I had a kid in between <laughs> and then I got um, my position and I started in May 2021 actually this year. Congratulations so, first of all getting a position and like starting in May 2021 is an achievement regardless of where it is in the world and what you do. <laughs> it has been a really tough journey so we started actually negotiating and I had my first interview in 2020 in April 2020. So it was a long um, journey and I'm so grateful for my employer that um, they kind of were flexible with me. <laughs> so, so it took a while to get where I am, but uh, I'm glad that we are making progress. So when was the first time? that you thought about brains and neurons and you know what got you thinking about the brain in general and sort of how did that grow into a career which university did you do your undergrad it's my university i'm originally from iran and like from the middle of the iran so when i was in undergrad i had two lectures actually they were interested in brain or they had some backgrounds in brain and one of them actually was a psychiatrist. So he would come to our department and we talk about brain and speaking about serotonin, dopamine and all of these. And I would go and find some original English because I was, we were in Iran, so I was studying everything in Farsi. So I was finding some textbooks in, in English and I would just go and ask him, so what about this? What about this? And I would follow him to his car from our department, like asking all of these questions. And I would go to one of my lecturers who was in the department and every now and then I'd just pop up in her office and ask all of these questions. I vividly remember that when we were in lectures, I would um, think about, oh, this is the ion channel that is now activating or this is the neurotransmitter that is now being transferred. Like, But I was trying to kind of practice uh, to myself what I've read. And it was really interesting trying to find out what's happening when I was learning about learning or memory or any, any kind of topic that we had. So that was a kind of the first um, starting point. And then from there, I moved to Tehran, which is the capital. Right. And so I did my master there. 
I started studying um, brain damage patients who had um, damage to their ventral cortex and you know, I was kind of liaising with one of the uh, radiologists and one of the neurologists there that who was kind of see these patients or refer them to me and um, so that was kind of a continuation of studying the brain mm -hmm. and at that university which was Shahid Behisht University in Tehran um, they were another lab who were doing great like neuroscience research and they are still doing um, neuroscience research but with animal animal physiology so I joined them it was really far from my uh, field but it was just an, another avenue for me to get to know how the brain works we actually went like from a from a clinical psychology studying human brain patients into like animal research which very few people make that job i think <laughs> so while i was doing my master and i was looking for patients which took about three years to find six patients so while i was just doing that i joined that group i think that was the turning point for my career But along um, like doing my master, again, I came across another lab that they were doing human studies with fMRI, the functional imaging. So rather than just looking at the structure of the brain, we look at the function of the brain and how the brain is activated. So at the time that they were studying for the Alzheimer's disease, so that was another kind of um, event. It was important for me realizing that I wanted to continue that path to go to Stockholm and study the brain actually using fMRI, which was my dream coming through. On that note, tell us a little bit about what you do. What are the questions that you're asking in neuroscience? What happens when we get older and what are the changes in terms of social and emotional aspects? Um, so the first study that I came across was that um, researchers found that when you present some faces, um, older adults tend to remember happy faces more or happy words more than neutral or than negative compared to younger adults. So that was kind of really interesting phenomenon for me. I continued that line of research to understand how our memory changes as a result or like in respect to emotional valence. And then I continued with that social aspects. We would present uh, faces like angry faces or happy faces to participants with different eye gazes and we would kind of scan their brain and see where the brain areas are involved in younger compared to older age groups. What is the reason why you chose young versus old? That sounds really interesting to me. Well, ideally, you would kind of um, follow people from younger age to like all the way through their 60s, 70s and 80s, but like financially, it's not. Right. So what we would do to kind of study the aging brain, again, in quotation marks, is that to kind of compare older adults from 65 years of age uh, with younger adults. But um, most of my work is actually against dogma that we think that when we get older, we lose everything, our memories, um, we're gonna lose our memory and all of this kind of cognitive decline that we think about. Yeah. But my research actually says that this is not the whole story. So despite the fact that these kind of changes happen, so we have some changes in our memory and executive functioning and also speed of processing, but 
we gain more positive output perhaps when we get older and our motivation changes, our goal changes. And so it's not all decline and it's not all deficits or difficulties that we normally think about in respect to aging. I'm not saying that everything is rosy, but mm. show that everything is not like downhill. <laughs> Say after your forty or your exactly. Even like cognitively, we know that um, cognitive decline and memory loss is not actually the same as aging. So when we get older, it doesn't mean that we necessarily lose our memory. So in yeah. terms of my research, there's actually some theory saying that because we perceive the time limited then as a result we are more positive obviously there are some individual differences but we seem to kind of shift our focus toward more positive aspects which i think is an interesting kind of translation to our mental health or for everyone in general as younger adults we might think oh we have enough time we have i don't know 60 years ahead of us or something for older adults because they perceive like we don't have enough time left so we just they focus on we're just going to do the best with like, yeah what we have we're going to do we're going to try to be as happy as we can in the most limited time that we have in our head exactly exactly so that's i think that one of the message from this type of research that perceive your time is not as like unlimited and then that could come with a bit more enjoyment and satisfaction right. of what you actually do and perhaps a bit more happiness at least among all our guests i think you're one of the few people who are actually trying to do this quality of life mental and you know sort of very human focused neuroscience so do you have somebody that you consider to be a role model or a mentor and like what do you admire about them right like it could be anybody who sort of inspired you to get where you are i've um, worked with different people throughout my career and um, I think one of the main characteristics of people that I aspire to be like them is that they have so much motivation and commitment to what they do so it's not like their job is not an obligation for them they just they wanted to do the work there because of the curiosity that they have and they want to explore and find the truth and that's really inspiring for me and I wanted to be someone like that that is just driven by truth and finding out what's happening in any field of research one of the other characteristics is that they just support really genuinely support young scientists and they nurture them they just want them to grow and become the best of themselves so i think best mentors are the one that they find the potential in you and they just try to teach you that you have those potentials and they right. can be and who you want to be like to give you that guidance and to give you that training and say yes this is what you need to do go ahead and do it i am here to help you i think that's very very rare that's true exactly because as some of us actually a lot of people in academia they have this kind of imposter syndrome like the mentors that i've experienced they actually taught me that you have the potential you can do it and it's just the attitude and like giving me more confidence yeah um and i think that's really important so i um i really like that um characteristic and i wanted to be someone like that that just sort of bring the best in people and help them to realize that they have those kind of characteristics and potentials as yeah well. and combating imposter syndrome especially like among women i think is totally totally important because that's something i feel 
at least the academia like pushes into us and it's sort of really hard to remove after a while because you it just becomes the way you think and you don't want that to like stay in your head especially when you're coming out to be like a new PI and you have all mm-hmm. these questions to answer it's it's kind of it's a bigger hurdle to get over and it's like a very mental health kind of a hurdle so yeah uh, anybody in 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 Tehran who had a, such an outsized influence on you like the like the professor you went and asked questions to <laughs> yes definitely actually i'm still in touch with uh one of my lecturer from my undergrad dr amiri and also the one that i've studied in his lab with animal physiology and dr hakbarast is this dr abbas hakbarast yes i'm seeing just like after 15 17 years oh i'm seeing touch with them i still like they encourage me they get really excited when i um get new positions or like i'm succeeding in what i'm doing so it's just um it's amazing i don't know how they do it but they just have such genuine interest in our future and it's i'm not the only students that they obviously from their lab became successful and like achieve what, whatever they wanted right. to i, I think it's just I, an I example of like really good behavior to emulate i feel i think that's what exactly do, right like they show you what good behavior is so that you can take that and like go and make your own lab and like you know hopefully <laughs> try to do like hopefully. a yeah, yeah I mean, exactly of what they've done for you i mean that's that's really that's really the hope um okay we will now dive into the edi part of the podcast so my first question to yeah. you is do you consider yourself to be part of a minority or an immigrant group and have there been times when you faced overt or subtle discrimination because of this well I'm an immigrant by definition. I moved from Iran 10 years ago and moved to Stockholm and then I moved to Australia. Throughout this time like for the last 10 years I've traveled across the globe in different continents so it's kind of inevitable that at some point you will come across um discrimination uh, if you want to call it but yes i have and um there were times that i felt unsafe threatened or scared um not because something directly happened to me because something happens to people from my religious background and i'm visibly religious so i wear her job so it's kind of easier for people to judge me because of my appearance I've got comments from people in terms of my freedom as a Muslim woman that they assume that I don't have much freedom um which is not true I should say so yes so they were like um covert and overt discrimination throughout the years and but I think one of the important things is that I've developed a coping mechanism one of the coping mechanism for me is that you stay focused I came out of Iran to be successful to achieve what i wanted to do and try to answer for my question so science right you came exactly. to do science that's your main goal exactly and when i left um i think i was talking to one of my friends as well they were like we didn't have any other options to be successful to achieve what we actually came out of iran to do right. not because we escaped iran or something it's just because we decided that for infrastructure for whatever reason we wanted to go out we wanted to study abroad
my coping mechanism was to stay focused and help people to understand me as a whole person. So yes, I'm from Iran, I'm religious, but I'm more than that. Right. I'm more than these kind of parts. And people who don't know me, they might judge me because of my appearance or because I'm from um, Middle East. But when they get to know me, they know more than that. So they know that I'm funny, I'm curious, or like those kind of characteristics. So I have a very diverse group of friendship here in Australia. And so I think we got to know each other beyond that religion or beyond that race and ethnicity kind of background. That sense of being an immigrant or being social psychology terminology, our group, I haven't come across as much because most of my friends actually are from either they are Australian or they are from different countries. Yes, there are people that they might have these kind of discrimination ideas against me, but I'm trying to kind of work hard and show them that I can be successful, I can contribute to your kids' education. I'm a lecturer, I can teach them, and I I can be part of the society to improve mental health. So when I contribute, then I think the discrimination, or at least my perception of the discrimination, will be less because I'm contributing. Trying to understand the science of these kind of discrimination. I'm not sure whether you're interested to know about it, but that understanding the science behind this type of behavior actually was helpful because people judge you because they don't want to spend time to understand and it's just snap judgment is quick and fast and intuitive. Um, but then if they wanted to overcome that, it requires more effort, more cognitive effort. They need to spend more time they're like it's easier to judge you based on some kind of uh, features from your right. appearance. I was thinking alongside you parallelly when you were talking about it one it is definitely difficult for people to like go beyond first impressions but what you mentioned in terms of trying to make people understand that you are on their side and you trying to do this by putting your signs first before like them looking at you or before I guess you coming out and saying I'm a Muslim woman, I'm religious and I wear the hijab um, putting your science before your person is I think a very it's a very worldly view right like mm -hmm. you are actually trying to extend the hand of friendship or extend the hand of recognition mutual recognition but through science or through social help, because you're saying, you know, I can help your society. And I think that's that's such a brave thing to do. And it's not something that people, as many people as I've spoken to, it's not it's not something that people have vocalized as um, as eloquently as you just did. It's, it's such a nice thing to do, because I feel like all of us, I mean, me as an immigrant, I do it too. It's just to a different degree. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess I've done it too. I just haven't been able to explain it to people and so I'm really mm -hmm. thankful for you for saying that because that's exactly I feel what all of us end up doing because mm -hmm. we try to put our signs in front of us and say this is a part of who I am this is something that can help you yeah definitely but I have to say like I don't feel um, me being a religious person is contradictory um, or in conflict with me being a scientist what people um, need to understand from me like this is my personal belief about religion and I don't necessarily need to talk about it and I don't talk about it unless people ask. 
And for science, this is my mission and this is my way of thinking, my way of living, actually. Mm -hmm. Using science to show that you are a multifaceted, multidimensional person in general, I think it's very useful. And, and I'm glad you made that distinction because that is also really difficult. And it's not something I feel even scientists don't talk about it a lot. Being religious as a personal choice versus being in science and mm -hmm. still having those two sides of your person and your personality coexisting within you. Thank you. I, I think one of the studies that I mentioned briefly was that kind of tapping into this, so because if you believe that all Muslims are terrorists, right? So that's a kind of a fast judgment that somehow you acquired and that's your assumption. Okay. And then um, if you come across Muslims and you see, well, that's your judgment. And then based on that, you would show some behavior. But if someone contradicts that assumptions and kind of tries to, um, argue with you that not all Muslims are terrorists, that assumption is being conflicted and being argued with. So we find that areas of the brain like inferior jars involved in processing conflict, it's becoming really activated because that assumption that you had was challenged. Okay. And so I think that's one of the reasons I'm saying that people judge because it's faster for them. And when you provide more information, it becomes more cognitively taxing they have to kind of practice it until that new assumption becomes easy as well you know so but then in the beginning requires more effort from their side but also from our side as well for people who are being judged to show that we are not only muslims or we are not only that particular minority that you are thinking of so we have more to offer science is my offering um, so yeah, I think it's a very complicated yes. phenomenon. Exactly. Now that you've mentioned it, it also feels like it takes extra steps. People on both sides have to take extra steps to like get to that point, right? Because exactly, if somebody is snap judging you, you can just be like, oh, I don't really care. It's their judgment. It's what they think of me. And you can walk away. But at the mm -hmm. same time, you can offer information about yourself, but they can just be like, oh, I don't want to take this. I'm happy with my snap judgments. Both parties need to take a step forward. <laughs> exactly. I remember I had a lecture in Stockholm that one day we were just bumped to each other um, in subway and he asked, can women study in university in Iran? And I said, well, I got my master in Iran before I came to Stockholm. And I said, oh, I never thought about it. Thank you so much. Like he didn't, he didn't know. He probably didn't ask. Well, nobody explained it to him that yeah. we can go to universities or we can drive or we can do this and this. I don't take my husband's family name because that's not what you do in Iran and I told one of my colleagues and she was like oh that's the only freedom and so you know so there are people they don't know actually and then they just make judgment so it's 
sometimes it's our responsibility as well to kind of be open about it and explain and we can kind of be more approachable and people would ask more questions and we can have a conversation so both parties will kind of get to know each other better absolutely this already segued into my next question but i'm going to ask it anyway because i feel like we can just wind up this conversation beautifully i was just going to say diversity has become an overwhelming catchphrase recently right but mm-hmm. what does diversity mean to you and do you have an event in your career where you've seen inclusivity and diversity play an important role I totally agree with you that it's a kind of catchphrase these days but I think diversity is everywhere like we are all diverse not every two persons the same so we have like different genetic compositions different education background and even if we are we are from the same family from similar genetic like the upbringing is different our experiences will be different so we are all diverse and I think inclusion and the ability for everyone to contribute regardless of their skin type or ethnicity or religious that their voice will be heard and their legitimacy and validity of their uh, voice and what they are saying it's not judged because they are from different ethnicities exactly yeah now the validity of their experiences also like exactly you, you as a person come with very different experiences and to have a small space to stand on and say you know what this is me but also this is my story exactly yeah. and i think from kind of culture and also organizational point of view diversity is really important um, that brings creativity so i've worked with different in different research centers that they have cultural and scientific diversity and they are really creative like they are the most creative people that i've seen mm-hmm. because they talk to each other a lot from different backgrounds and they challenge each other because they are coming from different point of view and they like beautiful ideas um burst from that kind of conversation um inclusions and diversity is not luxury thing that only rich organizations can and should adopt it's just for everyone it's a necessity and like everyone if you wanted to progress with science if you wanted to move the boundaries of science we have to have diversity from like and in terms of my career a few years ago i was a um, committee chair of a conference in national conference that we had to invite few speakers actually and um, so i invited three young a uh, female scientist from early in my career uh, stages to give a talk so we're, we had um, few speakers and i invited majority of them from like female scientists and i knew them i knew their science and i knew they were great mm-hmm. um so we invited them and they presented like fantastically and they and, like everyone was in awe of like the richness of their talk and like their experiences despite the fact that they were really young in their career Yeah. And actually one of my uh, senior male colleagues came to me and said, "Look, I didn't really think that they would be able to deliver such great talks. I'm really impressed and I'm really glad that you managed to do this." And we if you wanted to kind of promote them to where like senior leadership, they can do it, but mm-hmm. they need obviously training, they need opportunity and they need similar opportunities that as other colleagues to be able to do so.
I'm gonna be honest and I came across like a few months ago like last year because we were making a decision about um, our move and transition to new stage it was really stressful and mentally I was very stressed and overwhelmed so I went to the professional and I um, wanted help and I needed help then and I think it was the best decision that I made and I mm -hmm. think everyone who is dealing with kind of either transition or is overwhelmed they need to kind of seek professional help because that helped them um, to kind of clear some visions that they have for the future, clear mm -hmm. some goals, clear some values. And because I'm in a new kind of stage, I'm trying to upskill myself in terms of mentorship, in terms of my values and my goals and for my family, for my students and for my lab. Yeah. So I think um, upskilling yourself is really important. doesn't matter if you wanted to read more books um, or like just get more professional help we just have to make sure because i'm i was a perfectionist and i'm still trying to get over that the fact that everything needs to be the best of all like all kind of really yeah. high standards but sometimes you just need to adjust that um yeah. it just expectations not just from other people but also from yourself right from yourself exactly yeah. um and i think all of these could help us to have a clear boundary from work life and I, I know that working from home is kind of hard to make that boundaries but having set times and set boundaries um, will help to kind of close your work and just rest and when you're resting just rest hard and when you're working work hard. I'm so glad you, you came out and, and talked so openly about the fact that you actually sought mental health help because that's something that I think for a lot of people especially immigrants it never crosses our minds like we never think of it as an option. Like we never think, oh, you know, if I go talk to somebody else about my ideas and, and about my problems, they might be able to help me. And so thank you for saying that. I think a lot of us feel, because I'm a psychologist by background, so I don't feel it's in quotation again, it's a shame to kind of seek help. And thank I you. think it's necessary. And talking to friends sometimes help but it, they are not professional so then it might not be able to give you the best advice mm -hmm. and also thinking about seeking professional help in terms of upskilling yourself because they know something that you might be able to implement to manage your time better manage your stress better manage your workload better so I don't think it's necessarily related to minority but everyone who is in academia would benefit if they are struggling with Especially if they're in a kind of transition from postdoc to faculty member, yes. like from PhD to postdoc, because it's a change and there are lots of responsibility all of a sudden. Um, we're uh, all done. And thank you so um, much for having me. It was really uh, interesting conversation. It's my pleasure. It's all entirely my pleasure. And I feel so lucky that Alva has given me this opportunity to actually go ahead. And I feel like I've learned so much from so many people I've spoken to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alba Diversity Podcast. To know more about the Alba Network and its activities to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences, please visit alba.network. You can also register as a member for free and take full advantage of the network's resources. For more details, follow the Twitter handle at network underscore Alba or AlbaNetBrain on Facebook.